We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, which is not a passage that you usually hear at Christmas. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. My all-time favorite Christmas movie is Elf, starring Will Ferrell. This is not, if you come to our Christmas Eve gatherings, this is not the first time we'll talk about Will Ferrell this week, but I, I tend to think of that movie as relatively new, but it came out like 17 years ago. And uh, do you remember, this is going to be a spoiler alert, but since it's 17 years past, I don't feel bad about it. Do you remember the end of the movie when Santa can't get his sleigh to fly? And it's because there's not enough Christmas spirit. And so they start singing, right? You better watch out, right? They start singing the song, and then it starts to pant, and there's this crowd that starts to sing it, and then it starts, that, that crowd singing gets on the news. So all the people Buddy the Elf has met start singing, and the last holdout is his biological father. And they just can't get Santa's sleigh to fly. And then suddenly, Buddy's dad sings out, Santa Claus is coming to town, and the, the, the Christmas spirit meter goes like, all the way up and Santa is able to fly. I love that, and I was talking to my friend Laura about this. This is Laura's, not me. Um, that moment is, is why we gather for worship. That moment is why we gather together as God's people to worship, not to raise Christmas spirit, not to raise Christmas spirit, but, but as we gather together and sing, as we all gather together, as we all incline our hearts before the Lord, as we all lean back, as Marian said, into the presence of God, as we experience the nearness of God together, Brendan said it well in his video a few weeks, few weeks ago, he said, it's like the room rises. I would call that spiritual temperature. And it's as if God's presence is moving among us in, in tangible ways, but that only happens when all of us are a part of it, right? That's only when it happens, is when all of us gather together, all of us together make that, that meter go up. Why does that happen? Because he inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 22, 3. It happens because he inhabits the praises of people. When we, when we gather, when we lean in, when we lean in with our hearts and our minds and our bodies, with our voices, with our hands, with all of who we are, God's presence draws near. And when he does, we experience hope, even in the midst of a dark world. When God's presence moves among us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we find peace even in the midst of our anxiety. When God draws near to us in worship, when we discover that he is glad to be with us, we find joy in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. Why? Because he inhabits the praises of his people. So today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and it's the Sunday when we are invited to contemplate the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. We find on this Sunday that when God draws near to us, we experience his love in powerful ways. But I want us to stop and consider for a moment, what is love? Oh, come on, somebody. Thank you, Kristen. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I'm really super disappointed in you. So somebody was just, okay. So, but what a, uh, an even better question would be, what exactly is God's love? This is what 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says. It says, Beloved, 
I love that he calls us that, beloved. You're loved, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, made evident among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, he abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John, Jesus' best friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved says without hesitation that God is love and that, lo- that love of God is made manifest. It is made evident to us in the coming of Jesus. It is made evident to us as we love one another. Now, now the poets and the prophets of the Old Testament use the word hesed to describe God's love. Chesed. It is, a, it is a covenantal, loyal love, a steadfast love, an enduring love. The Jesus Storybook Bible that we've been reading to Jack this Advent season, some stories leading up to Jesus, it describes God's love, his chesed love, as a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The Jesus Storybook Bible gets it right when it says that you and I are lovely because he loves us. You and I are lovely because he loves us, and that's what love is. It speaks over us affection and assurance and belonging. It it reassures us. At his baptism, Jesus heard his father say, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And let me tell you of the insanity of the gospel, the insanity of the good news, is that you and I by faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the minute we say yes to Jesus, what God says over us is you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A friend of mine regularly posts a prayer to this effect. It says this, I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what other people say about me. I am the beloved of God. It's who I am. No one can take it from me. I don't need to hurry. I don't need to worry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. God's love speaks over us belonging and affection. It speaks to the deepest part of who we are. Sometimes God's love quiets us in our fears. It comes to soothe us. Remember, we read Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Sometimes love is how I go into Jack's room in the middle of the night when he's had a bad dream and I rub his back and say, shh, you're safe. Sometimes, sometimes, love does more than affirm or or, or speak belonging. Sometimes love does more than soothe. Sometimes love protects. 
Sometimes love intervenes. Sometimes a mother lifts a car up off of her child. There was this viral clip that went viral. (laughs) This is one of those moments where I say it's a good thing I don't communicate for a living. You know what I mean? Um, this, this, it's this woman who works at like some sort of like exotic reptile zoo thing. Did you see this? And she was feeding it. Uh, and she feeds this, this, this gator every day. But that day, it just jumped up out of the tank and grabbed her by the arm and yanked her into the tank and it started rolling her in the water. That's how alligators kill. They roll you till you drown. So this, this, this girl's getting gator rolled right? She's getting gator rolled. And this dad, that, it was at a kid's birthday party. Oh, awesome. So that, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of therapy. Some, some therapist's going to make a lot of money off of that. You know what I mean? And uh, so this dad who's there with his kid does the amazing, he just leaps into the tank as this chick is getting gator rolled. Sometimes when life is gator rolling you, God's love leaps into the tank. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I want us to look at together at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, there's two of them, right? Uh, it, it lines up with the book of First and Second Kings as well as First and Second Samuel. It's kind of another take on these same events. And we could nerd out about why that is theologically at another point. But at this point in Israel's history, they once were a, a united kingdom of 12 tribes, but something went down when Solomon was alive and Now there's two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and and the book of Chronicles does this. It chronicles the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Now some of those kings are really, really good. Some of those kings are really, really bad. A good king is a king like their father, David. They love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some kings are bad because they love wealth or power or women in 2 Chronicles 20, we meet a king named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's name means Yahweh, the Lord, has judged. He's not the best king, but he's certainly not the worst. But he is one of the good ones, and he reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat finds himself in trouble. He wakes up one morning to a report from one of his scouts that A united army of three foreign nations is encamped just 40 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay, so you and I haven't been to battle in a Bronze Age moment in a while, so let me just explain to you that a a foreign army 40 miles away, finding out that the day of, well, first of all, somebody wasn't doing their job. Um, But the second of all is that's about a day's march. They are on the doorstep. This is the Japanese invading Pearl Harbor. They're not coming, they're here, right? So what is Jehoshaphat's first response in 2 Chronicles 20? Look at verse 3. It says, Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news, and he begged the Lord for guidance. Now, the Hebrew there is, it literally means he sought the face of the Lord, and it says he ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting, He didn't say, call for my generals. He didn't say, let's get the army, wake them up. He said, I need to seek the face of the Lord. He calls everyone to fasting. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. It's women and children and infants. Look at verse 13. All the men of Judah, all the men of Judah stood before the Lord. He calls a prayer meeting. 
right? He doesn't call a strategy session. He calls a prayer meeting. As the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives and children, they didn't make the nursery available that day. You know what I mean? They, they said, this is all of us. We're all going to seek the face of the Lord. The Spirit, as they were there, the Spirit of the Lord came down on one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite, who was a descendant of Asaph. We talked about Asaph a few weeks ago, by the way. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen to what Yahweh says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this mighty army. Do you notice how there's never a denial of reality? Jehoshaphat's terrified. The army is mighty. For the battle is, listen, he says, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up through the ancient, the, the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel, but you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. They gather to pray, and as they pray, they get a prophetic word. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Go up to battle, but you won't need to fight. Why? Because the victory is the Lord's. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, the victory is the Lord's? Okay, maybe with a little more oomph than that, but that's okay. (laughs) Verse 18. So look what happens. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worship the Lord. Do you know what their battle position was? This was their battle position. Before the Lord, they worshiped. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord. The God of Israel with a very loud shout. The word for shout here in the Hebrew of verse 19, it's a, a victorious shout. It's the shout after you win. It's the shout after you win, right? It's the shout when you cross the finish line, not when you're running it, but that before the battle's even fought, what are they doing? They're crying out in victory. With trouble on their doorstep, they worship. With trouble on their doorstep, they praise. Before they've gone to battle, they are celebrating the win because they are so sure of God's presence and faithfulness. Now look at verses 21 through 24. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. He appoints a choir to walk ahead of the army, and this is what they sing. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love, his hesed. His faithful love endures forever. Faced with trouble, Jehoshaphat doesn't appoint a team of special forces. He doesn't find the strongest, the fastest, bravest warriors. He doesn't find the the wisest, shrewdest tacticians. He doesn't assemble the Avengers. He assembles a choir. They sing, and as they sing, what happens is this. God's protective love goes to work. Look at verse 22. At the moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. 
The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemies had escaped. We're just kind of taking a little bit of like a die-hard approach to Christmas today, okay? I want us to just stop and like really look at what just happened. This is not metaphor, right? The men of Judah and King Jehoshaphat, they go up for battle. They are led not by a general, but by a choir. The choir sang and the army turned on itself. Can I get an amen that our choir today was good, but not that effective? (laughs) Right? You see what I'm saying? Do you know what they sang about? The love of God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. They sing, and the powerful, protective love of God goes forth. What do we do when trouble appears on the horizon? What do we do when trouble appears on the horizon? You wake up and you pick up your phone and the first thing you see is bad news. What do you do when trouble's on the horizon? What do you do when you get the phone call and the diagnosis is cancer? What do you do? We worship. Not as a denial of the reality of the facts. Not to shut our eyes and close our ears and sing louder and pretend it's not happening, but as a way to further embrace reality. Because the reality is that when we are in trouble, when life is gator rolling us, the never stopping, unbreaking, forever and always love of God will come forth. I look to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the power of worship. No, no, no. This is the power of God in worship. This is like when people tell me about the power of prayer. Not sure what that means. I don't know what the power of worship means. I know about the power of God in prayer. I know about the power of God in worship. This is the powerful chesed love of God moving among his people as they worship. And here's what's interesting. This isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the first time that when faced with trouble, God's people sing. When Joshua leads the armies against a city called Jericho, they walk around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they shout. And do you know what the Hebrew word for shout is? It's the same word used in Psalm 81.1. Sing praises to God our strength. Make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. They worship and the walls come tumbling down. When Gideon leads Israel's armies in battle in the book of Judges, the armies of Israel shout, and their enemies are scattered. And the word for shout is the same word in Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. When Paul and Silas end up in prison in Acts 16, they sing. It says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me that Paul and Silas weren't thinking about Jericho when they sat in that prison. Don't tell me. And listen to this. At the end of days, I've read the end of the book. At the end of days, 
when our last enemy is defeated, when Jesus comes in glory to establish his kingdom on the earth, there will be singing. Singing launches the last battle. Revelation 19, this is the battle cry. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. Here's the conclusion that we draw as we look at these passages. Worship is a weapon. Worship is a weapon. Even more than that, worship is an act of war. When we worship, God moves against our enemies. Now, in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat faces a very real enemy, soldiers and spears and swords. You and I, you and I, we do not battle against flesh and blood. We do not battle against flesh and blood. We do not battle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against all evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but unseen powers in unseen places. And if in a fight against flesh and blood enemies, if in a fight against flesh and blood enemies, a choir, singing, worship was effective, how much more effective will worship and singing and hearts and minds and bodies aligned and inclined to the glory of the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, how much more will that win the day? Worship is an act of warfare. I said it this summer, I'll say it again. It's how we weaponize the promises of God against the schemes of our enemy. We have a habit. Now, here's this thing. We have a habit. Let's get into the practice of it. We have a habit of singing the same verse or chorus again and again. That's kind of a new thing in worship. And I'll admit, sometimes I'm not here for it. Sometimes, honestly, I'm ready to preach. Get me up there. But you know what it often feels like to me? When we sing the bridge again, it feels like loading another artillery shell. It feels like we're flying, yes, we're flying over Normandy and we're putting one more in the chamber. You know what I'm saying? Here's the thing, here's the thing. Do you notice how some songs have staying power? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. That song has staying power. Amen. Do you know why? Why is it stuck around for centuries? Now, some people would say, oh, the theology is really good, and, and it is, although some songs with staying power have really bad theology. Most of your Christmas carols have really bad theology. Christ did not appear in the flesh. He was flesh. Okay, save that for another conversation, Kyle. But, 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 but listen, and others might say, oh, well, it's so comforting. It, it, it makes me feel a certain way, and that might be true. But do you know why it has staying power? You know why I think it has staying power? Let me tell you why it has staying power. Because it has proven itself a reliable tool against the enemy's schemes. It has proven itself a reliable tool, a reliable weapon against the enemy's schemes. But you know what? Do you know why we need new songs? Because we're here in this moment. And while there's nothing new under the sun, a lot of it's new to us. 
And right there on the edge of the field, the enemy is doing a new tactic, and we need something new to meet that. We need a song to help us get there. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. We craft new weapons against the tactics of the moment, relying on the faithful armaments that sustained our forebears and developing new And here's what worship is. It's an act of warfare. It's an act of war. Why? Because he inhabits the praises of his people. When we worship, God draws near to us. When we worship, he draws near. And wham, there's the enemy. I mean, we gather some Sundays, and the entire thing feels like an uphill climb. And maybe it doesn't feel that way to you. To me and Julia, to the team, it feels like we are scaling not just a vertical face, but I mean like against an angle against us because we're declaring what is true to powers and principalities in unseen places they don't like this but we draw near god draws near to us as we draw near to him and there comes god's never stopping never giving up unbreaking always and forever love and it comes bursting out to protect and save us and heal us and yes there's sickness and yes there's suffering and yes there's sadness but there is also healing in the name of jesus there is also redemption in the name of jesus there is also restoration in the name of this jesus the love of god made manifest among us the love of god made manifest among us and here's our problem We get confused. This shouldn't be a surprise. Satan was the choir director in heaven. He likes to mess with music. Because if he can convince us that this isn't war, he just took a ton of territory. See, we get confused. We, we confuse a wartime activity with a commodity to be consumed, with a preference to be met, an entertainment to be enjoyed, or a performance to perfect. We get confused because we get worship and music mixed up. It wasn't the music that brought the victory in Second Chronicles 20. It wasn't the music that caused the invading army to turn on itself. It was what came before the music, and it was what came through the music. That's where the power was found. It was what came before the music and through the music. Jehoshaphat sought the face of the Lord. It's what came before the music, seeking the face of the Lord while their back was against the wall. Seeking the face of the Lord when there was no other option. And it was that desperation. And it was that hunger. That the presence of God came running to and ultimately the victory. There's a few things I've dedicated my life to. The multi- not, not just addition. But multiplication of Christians. Here's what I'm giving my life to. If I get to heaven and I don't see a ton of non-Christians come to know him, I'm going to be really unpleasant to spend eternity with. You know what I'm saying? I'm here for lost people. I am also here to seek the face of God, to passionately pursue his presence. 
And we can't passionately pursue his presence when it's about music, not about worship. Now hear me, excellence is important. Excellence is important. King David was a musician by all accounts. He was one of the best. When the portable tabernacle, the tent of meeting, became a temple, the Levites, the guys that were responsible for setting it up and tearing it down and setting it up and tearing it down, they didn't have anything to do anymore. So David said, all the Levites now are going to be worship leaders. That's how that happened. Didn't know that till this week. And in a temple where everything your, your eye saw, in a temple where everything you saw was beautiful and ordered, in a temple where everything you saw was beautiful and ordered, you better believe that the music that you heard was excellent. You better believe those musicians of the temple were practicing, but they weren't practicing the music. That practice, that wasn't music practice, that was target practice. You get what I'm saying? There's a place for excellence. There's a place. There's a place for the variety of ways people connect with God. Heather did a really good job in her reconnect, opening that up at the beginning of this month. We, we all are wired on some level or another to connect with God in different ways. So some of us do that through more traditional worship, and others through more ecstatic, and others through silence, and others through liturgy. There, there's, there's a wiring issue and how we're created and how God's made us to do this, but there is also a heart issue. There's also a heart issue, and this is the question this Christmas when we worship, where is your heart? When we worship, where is your heart? I heard a story the other day about a church. Um, I heard a story about the other day about a church, and uh, they were in a city, and a street person, like a homeless, homeless guy, came to faith. So you would come to their services, and they were much further along in Holy Spirit stuff, and so he would go to the front during worship and he would dance. And it, it, was, it was distracting. So the leader of the church started getting like some complaints. Hey, we need, we need to tell this guy to stop. We need to tell this guy to stop. So the leader went and said to the Lord, like, what am I supposed to do about this guy? You can weigh this. The Lord said to him, people wouldn't be noticing him dancing if they were worshiping the way they should. I've appointed him as a sign of judgment to the church that they're not worshiping the way that they should. Back in the 90s, there was this little church in the UK, Soul Survivor in Watford, and something just happened. Their hearts weren't there for worship. And so the pastor did something crazy. He said, we're not gonna sing any, we're, we're not doing instruments. We're gonna do only voices. And they wrote a song. And I'm going to invite the team to lead us in that. And then we'll go into communion.